Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. Feel free to download these audio files and share them with your friends and family. Please consider joining Beth Emanuel's virtual community and support our efforts for the kingdom by clicking on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. I've decided to take you down a strange path in the Bible today, one popularized by the late Michael Hauser in his book The Unseen Realm and subsequent titles. We'll start in our Torah portion with the story of the 12 spies sent out, sent by Moses to spy out the land. And you know how it goes with them. Ten of them were bad spies and they gave bad reports. And two of them turned out to be good spies. And that was Caleb and Joshua. The other 10 spies brought a bad report on the land. They said, we saw giants in the land. We were like grasshoppers in their eyes and in our own estimation. In our own eyes, we felt like grasshoppers compared to these these giants, these Canaanites in the land. But Caleb and Joshua brought a different report. They said, the land is very, very good. We should certainly go up and take possession of the land. And the Lord praised Caleb for what he characterized as a different spirit. Numbers 14.24 says, But my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. Not so the rest of the generation that heeded the advice of the ten bad spies that brought the bad report. And if there's something to preach here, if there's a homiletic point to be made, it's that choices made early in life bear fruit later in life. So if I could preach for a moment and speak to you young people, if you're in your teens or in your 20s, you might wrongly assume that the choices you make now will will not much impact your future. When a person is young, he or she carries this, this false sense of invulnerability, assuming that there's always second chances, that can always get things together later. The truth is that sin clings to you, and you will never know the potential that you lose until you stand on the other side and look back over your life, and you realize, I had opportunities that were closed to me. So I encourage you to be like Caleb and to emulate his different spirit and choose now to do hard things. Or as it says, he has followed me fully. Caleb chooses the hard path. He's not just going with the flow. He's not going with the crowd. And if you fast forward 40 years and look back at your life, you'll see how your life has borne fruit for the choices that you made back in your teens, back in your 20s. Fast forward 40 years in Caleb's life, and we come to Joshua chapter 14. I'm going to read this text to you in Joshua 14, beginning in verse 6, but let me set it up first. We've already been five years invading the land of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua, and the Canaanite strongholds have fallen one after another with these miraculous miraculous, uh, victories, but The Canaanites at Hebron are still in place. And so it says, Then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua in Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, 
concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren, who went up with me, made the heart of the people melt with fear. But I, I followed the Lord my God fully. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden will be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God fully. Now, behold, the Lord has let me live, just as he spoke, these forty-five years. From the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, when Israel walked in the wilderness, and now behold, I am eighty-five years old today, and I am still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now, for war, and for going out, and for coming in. Now then, give me this hill country, about which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day that Anakim were there, with great fortified cities. And who knows, perhaps the Lord will be with me, and I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. So you see the picture here. Caleb is asking permission to go fight the giants, the Anakim, those same giants that so terrified the other spies and so terrified the children of Israel that they lost their opportunity to enter the land of Canaan. It's 45 years later and the giants are still there. And Caleb is asking for permission to go fight them. And it says, So Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb the son of Jephunneh for an inheritance. And therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, until this day, because he followed the Lord God of Israel fully. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, for Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. Then the land had rest from war. All right, that's the text. But if we were to flash back then 45 years earlier, we see Caleb at the age of 40 going out with Joshua and the other 10 spies in our Torah portion, Parsha Shalach. And as they come up out of the Negev and into the hill country of Judah near Hebron, Caleb and the spies see the giants. Okay, were they really giants? Well, they were pretty tall, but in the ancient world, people tended to be shorter. The average Israelite probably stood around five feet tall, a biblical giant like Goliath stood around nine feet tall. So, yeah, if you're five feet tall, looking up at a guy who's nine feet tall, that's a giant. According to the spies who went to spy out the land in advance of the children of Israel, there are giants in the land. So they say in Numbers 13.22, it says, When they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron, where Achiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak were there, the sons of Anak. These are called Anakim, the sons of Anak, or we could translate it as giants. They are the sons of Anak, 
Achiman, Shishai, and Talmai, but I think we're talking about more than just three guys. We're not just talking about three large guys. We're talking about three clans of giants, the clan of Achiman, the clan of Shishai, the clan of Talmai, all of them descendants of someone named Anak. Moses describes the Anakim, these giants, in Deuteronomy. When he says in Deuteronomy 9.2, a people great and tall, the people of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? So it's already proverbial. Who can stand before these giants? Who can stand before the Anakim, the sons of Anak? And the Bible pairs the Anakim the sons of, of Anak, with another, another people group called the Rephaim. English versions of the Bible just translate a Rapha as a giant, and the Rephaim, in these kinds of texts, as giants, because the Septuagint translates, the Greek version, translates Rephaim as giganton, that is, giants. You can hear it. Giants. Giganton. So the sons of Anak are the giants. But then the spies say, we also saw the Nephilim. And the Torah says, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Numbers 13.33 Okay, where have we encountered Nephilim before? You probably know, that's going to be before the flood. That's in the days of Noah and before the days of Noah. We find the Nephilim, which means fallen ones, in Genesis 6, 2 through 4, where it says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Genesis 6, 2, 3, and 4. All right, it's a strange text, and one that's stirred a lot of controversy, but There was a particular interpretation in the first century, which is attested to both in the New Testament and in the apocryphal literature, which was common in the Jewish community at the time, that this needs to be taken literally, not figuratively, that we're really talking about angels, angelic beings of some sort, consorting with the daughters of men and bearing a hybrid type of race called the Nephilim, these mighty men who were of old these demigods, if you will, these men of renown. And Rashi explains that the Anakim in Hebron, he says, they were the descendants of Shemchazai and Azael, who fell from heaven in the generation of Enosh. What? Yeah, that's what Rashi says. Again, Rashi says that the Anakim, that Caleb and the spies encountered in Hebron, and that Caleb requested permission to go fight, were the descendants of Shemchazai and Azael, who fell from heaven in the generation of Enosh. In other words, they were sons, descendants, I should say, of these angelic beings. 
Apocalyptic texts make it clear that the giants are a central concern in the antediluvian age before the flood. The book of Enoch is dealing with the giants. So the book of Enoch, a popular first century text, is primarily concerned with the giants. Enoch prophesies to the giants, tries to warn them, tries to warn them a flood is coming. We find another interesting correlating text about the Nephilim in the book of Jubilees. You won't find the book of Jubilees in your Bible, but it's another of these popular first century apocryphal texts, apocalyptic apocryphal texts. And in this story, in this part of the story, after the flood, Noah is praying and asking God to deliver him and his sons from the spirits, the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim, because all the Nephilim drowned in the flood, but now all of their disembodied spirits are causing all sorts of trouble and roaming around, and so... In the prayer of Noah, he says in Jubilees 10, verse 3, God of the spirits of all flesh, who has shown mercy unto me, and has saved me and my sons from the waters of the flood, and has not caused me to perish as thou didst the sons of perdition. For thy grace has been great toward me, and great has thy mercy been to my soul. Let thy grace be lift up upon my sons, and let not wicked spirits rule over them, lest they should destroy them from the earth. But do thou bless me and my sons, that we may increase and multiply and replenish the earth. And thou knowest how thy watchers, okay, when he says thy watchers, that's a reference to these angelic beings. That's one of the names. We pick it up from the book of Daniel of these angelic beings, the watchers. He says, thou knowest how thy watchers, the fathers of these spirits, acted in my day. And as for these spirits which are living, imprison them, and hold them fast in the place of condemnation, and let them not bring destruction on the sons of thy servant, my God, for these are malignant and created in order to destroy, and let them not rule over the spirits of the living, for thou alone canst exercise dominion over them, and let them not have power over the sons of the righteous from henceforth and forevermore. All right, so I hope you understand what's happening here in this amazing prayer of Noah in this apocryphal text of Jubilees chapter 10. What he's saying is he's he's complaining to God saying that, okay, it was great. Uh, the flood wiped out all the wicked, but now all of their disembodied spirits are around and they're causing all these problems for us. And so he's asking God, so he's asking God to imprison these spirits and hold them fast in the place of condemnation. And then the angel who's narrating the book says, so the Lord our God bade us to bind all. And the chief of the spirits, the Satan, came and said, Lord, creator, let some of them remain before me. And let them hearken to my voice, and do all that I shall say unto them. For if some of them are not left to me, I shall not be able to execute the power of my will on the sons of men. For these are for corruption and leading astray before my judgment. For great is the wickedness of the sons of men. And so he said, Let the tenth part of them remain before him, and let nine parts descend 
into the place of condemnation. All right, so you understand now what has happened. According to the book of Jubilees, this is the origin of the demonic spirits, the unclean spirits. They are the spirits of the Nephilim. Only 10% of the spirits of the Nephilim, the other 90%, having been uh, chained up in the place of condemnation. But the demons that remain are a tenth of the spirits of those drowned in the floods. They are the drowned ones. It's an interesting idea, that's for sure. And maybe it comes from the word Rephaim itself. As we said, you know, the word Rephaim gets translated by the Septuagint as giants. Well, not in all passages. In some passages in the Tanakh, the word Rephaim gets translated as the shades of the dead or the ghosts of the dead, so to speak. For example, we read a text like Isaiah 14, verse 9. It says, Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the Rephaim, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. So we could translate that as the New American Standard does. It arouses for you the shades of the deceased or the shades of the departed. Uh, all the leaders of the earth, or you could translate it as, it rouses for you the giants, all the leaders of the earth, it raises for you the kings of the nation. We find this uh, is a consistent feature in the descriptions of Sheol, the place of the dead. For example, in Isaiah 26, verse 14, it says, the dead will not live, the departed spirits will not rise, therefore you have punished and destroyed them. And you have wiped out all remembrance of them. But when it says the departed spirits will not rise, it's this word Raphaim, which we could translate as giants or departed spirits. Either one is fine. The, the Hebrew is Raphaim. The dead will not live. The Raphaim will not rise. Therefore, you have punished and destroyed them and you have wiped out all remembrance of them. So, the English Standard Version, for example, uses words like shades, the dead, departed, like we find in Psalm 88, verse 10. Will you perform wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits, that is the Raphaim, rise and praise you? Or in Proverbs 2.18, her house sinks down to death, her tracks lead to the Raphaim. Or we find in Job 26, the departed spirits, the Raphaim, tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Naked is Sheol before him. Abaddon has no covering. And many other, many, many other passages might be cited. And again, it's interesting that the Septuagint, in other contexts, translates Raphaim as giganton, as giants. So it seems that when they're in the flesh, perhaps we can understand the Raphaim as giants, but when they are disembodied, disincarnate, so to speak, they are the shades of the departed. Perhaps this should be taken into account when trying to understand Peter's words in 2 Peter 2.4, when he says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, into Sheol, and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, and then he says in 1 Peter 3.19 and 20, he speaks of the spirits now in prison, the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God was kept waiting 
in the days of Noah. So hold on. Let's make sure we're clear on all of this. We have Anakim living up in Hebron and in the hill country of Judah. The Anakim, it turns out, are a type of Rephaim. And the Rephaim, it turns out, are the type are a type of Nephilim. All right, so the Rephaim, when they were alive before the flood, they were Nephilim. They were these half-breed giants born of unholy an unholy union of angelic beings and the daughters of men. And after the flood, 90% of them became shades confined to Sheol, it, it, it appears. And 10% were left to ro- roam around the world as Shadim, as demon spirits, to tempt and to deceive human beings as unclean spirits. And that was by special request of the Satan according to the book of Jubilees. But how, how can there be Nephilim then living in Canaan? How can the Anakim be Nephilim if everybody was wiped out in the flood? If the giants in the land came from Nephilim, how did this happen when all the Nephilim were wiped out in the flood? And the answer is, I don't know. But that's what the text says. And in fact, if you look closely at Genesis 6-4, where the whole subject is introduced, it says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. So in those days, meaning in the days of Noah, and also afterward. The afterward is presumably after the flood. Numbers 13-33 is the only other mention of these creatures, these Nephilim, in Scripture. So, this would explain the comment in Genesis 6-4, where it says, and also afterward. Judaism brings an explanation. Uh, There's a traditional explanation about Og, king of Bashan, clinging to Noah's ark to survive the flood. Now, Og is this character, this character that appears in the Torah. He's the he's he's this uh, Ammonite king. Uh, Moses talks about him. He says, you know, Og, king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. He says only Og, king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. That's Deuteronomy three eleven. And then he goes on to describe him saying, Behold, his bedstead was an iron bedstead, if we're translating that correctly. It is in Rabbah of the sons of Ammon. Its length was nine cubits, its width four cubits by the ordinary cubit. So whatever the bedstead was, it was really big and it was made of iron. Joshua 12.4 says, Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim. So we had all these Rephaim described in the battle of the armies in Genesis chapter 13 when Lot was taken captive from the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we have that entire episode. And, and the, the kings of the east come and they defeat the Rephaim. And so according to legend, Og is a survivor from that battle. Uh, that's one, that's the traditional explanation. Another text from the Torah, Deuteronomy 2, 20 and 21, Moses says, 
that this land is also regarded the land of the Rephaim, for Rephaim formerly lived in it, but the Ammonites called them Zamzumim, a people great and numerous, tall as the Anakim, but the Lord destroyed them before them. That's Deuteronomy 2, 20 and 21. So you begin to see the picture. The Canaanite peoples, the Anakim, the Rephaim, the Zamzumim, the Emimim, the Nephilim, these Canaanite people were not apparently ordinary human beings. But back to the story. When Moses sent Caleb and Joshua out, they went out with the other ten spies up through the Negev and fanned out into the hill country of Judah. It says, Numbers 13.22, When they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. What's the significance of coming up to Hebron? Well, that's where Abraham lived. That's where the Machpelah tomb is, that he bought the tomb in the field uh, with the cave, uh, and, and he buried his wife Sarah there and entombed his wife Sarah, and that's where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are entombed, and that's where Sarah, Rebekah, and Leah, not Rachel, are entombed. And, and Rashi points out that in the Hebrew of Numbers 13.22, there's actually a change from the plural to the singular form of the pronoun. So it says, when they had gone up into the Negev, he came to Hebron. So the they is the 12 spies. The he who came to Hebron, where Achiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak were, that's Caleb. So Rashi says, when they, the other, saw, the other spies, saw the giants, their hearts melted and they fled. But Caleb went to the tomb of the patriarchs to pray. Rashi says, Caleb alone went there and prostrated himself on the graves of the patriarchs, offering prayer that he might, he might be helped not to, give a, not to give way to the enticement of his colleagues, the other ten spies, or to join them in their counsel. You may see it was Caleb who went there, Rashi says, and he's referring to Joshua, uh, that text that we read from Joshua. So we get this picture of Caleb, that Caleb, Caleb is on a mission to bring the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this explains why he has a different spirit. This explains his radical faith. This radical faith of Caleb is founded on the certainty of the promises that God made to the forefathers. Forty-five years later, we have the story of Caleb asking Joshua for the privilege to try to take Hebron, the last holdout of the giants. And so we read in verse 13 of Joshua 15, Now he gave to Caleb the son of Jephunneh a portion among the sons of Judah, according to the command of the Lord, to Joshua, namely Kiriat Arba, Arba being the father of Anak, that is Hebron. And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Shishai, Achiman, Talmai, the children of Anak. So here we have this epic battle of Caleb going up to fight these Anakim, finally, after 45 years. And he leads the battle and defeats the giants, defeats the Anakim, drives them out from there. And there's actually a brief side story in this epic with the last of the giants holding out at a place called Debir. So Joshua 15 verses 15 to 17 says, 
Then he went up from there, that is up from Hebron, against the inhabitants of Debir. Now the name of, the, of Debir was formerly was Kiryat Sefer, the uh, village of the book. And Caleb said, The one who attacks Kiryat Sefer and captures it, I will give him Achsa, my daughter, as a wife. Otniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, captured it. So he gave him Achsa, his daughter, as a wife. For his part, Caleb gets Hebron. But not really, because First Chronicles tells us the city of Hebron was turned over to, 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 to the... Because First Chronicles tells us the city was turned over as a Levitical city. It says, Now these are the settlements according to the camps within their borders to the sons of Aaron, of the families of the Kohathites, for theirs was the first lot. To them they gave Hebron in the land of Judah and its pasture lands around it. But the fields of the city and its villages they gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. So, it turns out that Caleb wasn't after the city of Hebron. He didn't want Hebron. He wanted the fields of the city. Why did he want the fields of the city of Hebron? Well, this should remind us of the passage that says in Genesis 23, After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of Heth. Genesis 23, 19 and 20. So the practical meaning Caleb's faith rested on the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was not after the city of Hebron. He was after the tomb of the patriarchs. Likewise, upon those promises, we rest our faith, the faith of Abraham. And we look toward a future coming eschatological collision this cosmic struggle between good and evil that plays out on the stage of this world. And we're reminded to choose a side now. Don't compromise. Don't shrink away. Don't tell yourself, it's too big. Don't tell yourself, we're like grasshoppers. Instead, go with Caleb and his different spirit, standing on the promises to the forefathers, saying, the land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, the land of the kingdom, a land which flows with milk and honey. And that's the end of the story, sort of. There's actually a brief epilogue that I would raise because we'll get a little recap of the entire episode in Joshua eleven twenty one and 22, where it says, Then Joshua came at that time to cut off the Anakim from the hill country. That's the story we've been talking about. And we know Caleb went out and fought the Anakim. From Hebron, that was Caleb's battle. From Debir, that was Otniel. Uh, and he drove them out from Debir so that he won the daughter of Caleb. And from Anab. And from all the hill country of Judah. And from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. There were no 
Anakim left in the land of the sons of Israel, it says. Okay, so no more Anakim, no more giants, no giants left in the land of Israel. But then it says, except in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod, some remained. Joshua 11, 21 and 22. Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod, those are Philistine cities on the coast. Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. That should remind us of something. Gath. Why does, this, why does the name Gath ring a bell? Well, this provides the context for the story of David and Goliath. From what city does Goliath come? From Gath. A champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath, from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He was clothed with scale armor, which weighed five thousand shekels of bronze. He had bronze greaves on his legs, and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed six hundred shekels of iron. His shield-carrier also walked before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? And all through the story of David, he's going to be warring with these giants. As it says in 2 Samuel 21, Now when the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David went down and his servants with him, and they fought against the Philistines. And David became weary. He's an old man now. Then Ishbi Benob, who was among the descendants of the giant, the weight of whose spear was three hundred shekels of bronze in weight, was girded with a new sword, and he intended to kill David. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, helped him and struck the Philistine and killed him. But the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall not go out again with us to the battle, so that you do not extinguish the lamp of Israel. Now it came about that after this there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibichai the Hushathite struck down Saph who was among the descendants of the giant. There was war with the Philistines at Gob, and Elchanan, the son of Yare or Gim, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. There was war at Gath again, and there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number, and he also had been born to the giant. When he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shemai, David's brother, struck him down. These four were born to the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. And that's the job of the king, the job of King David and Messiah, son of David, to make war and defeat the giants, the Anakim, the Raphaim, the Nephilim, the shades, and the unclean spirits and to bring about the fulfillment of the promises to the forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Take on my yoke And learn from me And find rest for your soul